RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Well, New Zealand First returns again in the form of Shane Jones. And I don't need to make much of an introduction. Everyone knows Shane, and uh, he joins us right now on RCR. Shane, thanks for coming on our program this morning. It's nice to have you. Mm, thanks for enabling me to, uh, yeah, broadcast my views, answer your questions, and engage with your viewership. I'm going to remind you how long you've been around right now. I met you, you might not remember this, but I met you at News Talk ZB in Wellington on the afternoon show. I think you're in the fisheries then, and you came wow. in, and you'd just come into that position, I think. Yeah. Um, you, you might want to remind us what that was, but, and you were talking about that, and you know what? I knew nothing about fisheries. <laughs> <laughs> you were dealing with a lightweight back then, <laughs> mate, I tell you. Uh, I probably faked it a bit, but uh, but you were very gracious. 2001, 2002. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It was quite a long time ago. Boy, a lot's happened since then, huh? Yeah, yeah. The Actually, funnily enough, at about that time, I had a bout of uh, bowel cancer. I was only 41, 42, whatever I was. Right. And uh, my wife said, well, hey, pal, we've got bills coming out of our ears. We've got seven kids. It's not an appropriate time for you to conk out. <laughs> so anyway, sort of uh, outlived that challenge and uh, had a great time doing uh, a whole host of exciting and um, life-changing things, actually, at the top of the pyramid there in the fishing industry, then washed up with Helen Clark in politics. But sadly, I worked out after well, a year or three that the Labour Party had become an urn of political, an urn of identity politics. And uh, I was just never ever going to be happy there and then moved on. And then Winston in 2017 said, look, Shane, it's probably still lead in the pencil. Uh, if, if you're keen, we'd uh, really like you to, to work with us in New Zealand first. I was fortunate enough to come back into politics. And then, as you know, turned out to be the regional development minister with a few other things, the forestry minister and an infrastructure. So that occupied the majority of my time between 2007 and 2020. And then we had that wretched COVID experience uh, and that election, which did not play to our strengths at all. Uh, we had a situation where the media uh, formed over Jacinda and we were pretty much uh, left into the obscure parts of the political universe and, uh, yeah, didn't get back in after the last election. However, both Winston and I haven't given up and we think the market is such that there's an opportunity for New Zealand first to reappear. A couple of things. You said identity politics in Helen Clark's era. So how far back are we going there when you sort of realised that? Because... Uh, most of us have really only been focused on identity politics probably for about the last three or four years. That's going back way further than that. So what were the early signs? Well, the person who stirred my imagination to go into politics was David Longy. But as a young father and uh, had a very, very large family and went overseas and studied at Harvard for a while, I had to obviously address the economic challenges of being a dad and my wife wasn't supportive um, uh, of uh, a political career at that stage. But when I teamed up with Helen, uh, Helen was a formidable politician. And uh, many of the things that she uh, pushed 
they were soon forgotten about because you, Helen Clark, although she was a social democrat, she'd been raised in rural New Zealand and she had quite conservative views insofar as it pertained to matters of the treaty, Maori politics, ethnic politics, and she was a great supporter of the Indian community, but she kept a firm hand on how much of the ideology of Maori identity politics, uh, treaty activism should be brought into mainstream policy making. She disappeared. Eventually, David Cunliffe turned up, and I knew right there and then that identity politics was going to be their new creed, and I bailed out. He was the guy who apologised to women, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, it's uh, mental, mental. Well, you may recall I stood for the leadership race and what I didn't like was the Labour Party president of that time, I forget the lady's name, she came from Coromandel, was insistent there had to be a 50-50 rule, 50 men, 50 women, and I felt that it undermined meritocracy. And uh, I went and sought some views from the hoi polloi and I recall meeting a couple of women at the... Kaitaia Jukinisho timber processing facility owned by the Japanese. And this person said to me, well, what are you talking about, Shane? Just explain it again in you know, simple words. And then she said, Shane, we don't want the country run by geldings. And um, I said that on the front page of the New Zealand Herald. And uh, naturally a huge row broke out. But I had enough resilience and strength to see it through. But nowadays, if you talk in that plain, earthy vein, there's an entire troll community out there who want to close you down. And that's why I admire Winston Peters. He is actually a great believer in the freedom of speech. And he does use phraseologies and uh, has approaches that pos- that are discordant with the... Um, with the accepted narrative. I want to talk about all of that in just a moment, but you're, you're so well connected, so I'm sure you've got an answer for this. Where does Māori sit on what sort of country they want to have? Not the people in power, but, you know, the average, if there is such a thing, person. I mean, how can we gauge what they want and what they think? Are they buying into all of this, or is this something that, you know, is community-wide, this, I don't know, renaissance of identity, all the things that go with it? What would you say about that? Well, Paul, a week ago, a young man died in Whangarei. Now, just bear with me, Paul. I will answer your question. A young bloke died in Whangarei. He intervened in an altercation between uh, this uh, young woman who was getting a bit of dough out of the uh, ATM machine at the Gold Service Station. He intervenes, gets in a scuffle, altercation with a couple of blokes, and he gets stabbed multiple times. He dies. So then I went to the site and made a a Facebook post about it. And I said, we can no longer turn either a blind eye or stand by idly while this feral culture, which is a wretched Petri dish feeding gangs, feeding welfareism and feeding the victimhood ideology continues to grow. The vast majority of the 50,000 people, well, actually 20-odd thousand on TikTok and almost 50,000 on Facebook, who have responded to my post are Māori, garden variety, blue-collar Māori. And they agree with my call. It's time to put the K back in iwi. The iwi 
leaders are a tiny group who in most cases are disconnected from the day-to-day travails of their neighbors. They are driven by small but dangerously polarizing ideas. And they are not an example. They're not a sample. They're not a proxy for the garden variety, Māori whānau, who themselves have got all the bloods of the world, as my as, as we have in my family. But we're Kiwis, we're New Zealanders, we're all together. We're proud of our church, we're proud of our marae, we're proud of the language, but we do not buy into this notion that you can have fractured sovereignty or you can divide nationality. We believe in indivisible citizenship, indivisible nationality, and we're nationalists. We're patriotic. Yeah, where's patriotism gone? Is it still there? Because it's hard to see at the surface level these days compared to other places. I could name some, but you know who I mean. Um, it was Anzac Day a few days ago. Everyone turned out and they probably felt patriotic, but only for until the shops opened at 11 probably. But patriotism has been assaulted by the lawlessness, the culture of dissoluteness where consequences don't matter. Once the Supreme Court handed down to the lower courts that a person's crime, a person's offence, a person's wrongdoing could be mitigated, you take into account um, their cultural upbringing, they got porridge and not rice bubbles. You take into account how long they may have been in a gang. You take into account the blighted circumstances multi, multi-generationally of where they come from. I don't care if you have murdered someone, if you are creating menace and mayhem, peddling drugs, I want you to be deterred from doing that again. And of every right as a senior identity from the North to have these views. I don't subscribe to the notion that I'm re-victimizing someone who's just made a victim of someone else. But sadly, um, the approach that Winston and I bring, and disproportionately, this, this crime problem in regional New Zealand with gangs is a Māori issue. Now, it may be different in the South Island. It may be different in parts of South Auckland. But in the North, where I come from, I've had a gutsful of enabling people to continue to live lifestyles that are a danger unto themselves, but they are most certainly undermining the moral character of the neighbourhood and the sense of safety and indeed the resilience of Northland. And I'm going to campaign unstintingly on that. And people might say, oh, there's not enough room in the prisons, etc." Uh, I'd gladly sail a ship up into one of our harbours uh, get 10 engineers and 100 welders and start making some enclosures. If you do not want to live in our community and uh, want to derive your uh, pleasures from forcing the rest of us to cower in fear or change our lifestyles in case we bump into you, put you in a dinghy, out you go on the ship, and you stay there until you've learned your lesson. There could be some spare ferries soon too with the new ones coming and them breaking down all the time, so that idea... I have more practical application than you think. So it's election year, and you guys have been around for 
Yeah, a long time. A lot of name and brand recognition there. Yet it seems to be a bit of a struggle to get that poll rating up. Though also, um, New Zealand First has a history of jumping in popularity in the near time to an election. Yes, yes. I mean, the maestro is our leader, Winston Peters. And on numerous occasions, he's reminded me of a great line in the in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a season for all things. And so much of politics is often about psychology. It's not only how people feel, but it's the time at which you seize upon particular issues. He's demonstrated it in the past, and we've got the utmost of confidence that his judgment is not only sound, but he will enable um, certain issues to be treated by us as a party in such a way it's a clarion call. I mean, there is a lot of volatility. There's uh, quite a lot of disorderly feeling in relation to the uh, track towards the election. But I, I would say to everyone, the vast majority of politicians, uh, uh, the vast majority of voters don't really tune into the politicians until you get quite close to an election. And there's early voting now. So we're going to do the hard work. Certainly I am in the north well before that period of time when people trot off to the local library or wherever else to vote. And um, it'll be a foregone conclusion because the hard work will already have been done. What about early voting? Just you mentioning it made me think uh, if things are volatile and changing really quickly, someone could make their vote and then <laughs> and not be able to uh, undo it after that, I'm picking. Uh, circumstances change and you've kind of snookered yourself. Yeah, one of three in the north did say to me, oh, gosh, we understand all the good things you blokes did do now, Jonesy, but we've already voted. I yeah. said, oh, well, buy remorse, buy remorse. So I, did, I, I, I would remind everyone, though, in 2020, 400,000 national voters turned out and they crowned Jacinda. Now, they like to have a low blow shot at um, New Zealand first that we went with Jacinda in 2017, but in 2020... 400,000 New Zealanders who historically national voters turned out and crowned Jacinda. And, and I understand their feelings of remorse and not perhaps wanting to own up. Well, why did they do it? COVID, fear. There was enough money floating around. Let's face it, every single hour of the day, uh, the vast majority of the media were intoxicated by the pixie dust around Jacinda. Could you foresee that, knowing who she was and knowing the Labour Party, that suddenly she would spring out and become a darling like that, not only of the media, of many of the citizens as well? Well, one thing I didn't see, I hadn't appreciated how much time, effort and money had gone into the curatorship of her image, her status and her profile. And um, when the issue was right, Jacinda was an extraordinary communicator. But sadly, once those issues, which were often times of um, critical, uh, yeah, critical, critical importance in relation to an awful event happening, but once we got back to the bread and butter issues, once we got back to the humdrum of New Zealand politics, which is trying to fix at a micro level the ongoing challenges that afflict the New Zealand community, uh, she both had no idea, 
but she continued, well, not only her, they said the Labour set up far too many working parties, far too many policy seances, and they mistakenly thought that words were synonymous with deeds, which is why my approach uh, in my campaign is um, action, not talk. Well, let's talk about action, not talk. The Provincial Growth Fund, I've heard that uh, both criticised and endorsed. Mm. Uh, you you know, had quite a bit of money to play with, in our terms anyway, for that program. How do you think history is going to view that? Well, I think that what the people tuning into our discussion need to bear in mind, in New Zealand, it does take a while for the simplest of things to be approved by the authorities, whether it's a roundabout, a bridge, and the vast majority of the money spent from the Provincial Growth Fund, Paul, went into infrastructure, whether it was jetties and wharves, because we're a great believer that a birthright of being a Kiwi is the ability to get out onto the Blue Marae, the Blue Highway, and recreate on the, uh, in, the, in the harbours, in the estuaries, on the ocean. But as matters have um, transpired, more and more people who have bought coastal property have ended up essentially privatising access uh, to the coastal uh, to the coastal environment. So we sought to undo that. We sought to un uh, well. We sought to disentangle all the bureaucratic rubbish that stops simple things like roundabouts being fixed up. We've fixed up a tremendous number of key infrastructure points, whether it was more re sports recreation, airports, things that all Kiwis derive some benefit from because it makes it easier for us to move around, celebrate our style of life, and also it boosted business through the provision of better, uh, improved the ability for people to generate goods and services, whether it's a Portuguese. Uh, how, how many times has that blighted and benighted area been promised things and nothing ever happened? We delivered. How many times had Kiwi Rail in Northland and other such place, places being identified as a key feature of a modern transportation system? And the next objective for me is the Blue Highway. Uh, and and I've just had a gutsful way of all these shrill, apocalyptic voices to do with uh, climate change. Climate change in New Zealand is volatile weather. Volatile weather means the Kiwis need to learn and be assisted to adapt our way of life to cope with more variable and volatile weather. And whether we did nothing, it would have zero impact on what the rest of the world does. So I'm all for us enabling ourselves to ensure that our style of life, our ability to pay our way is boosted by a greater focus on adaptation. All right. So I want to ask you about the COVID thing before we wind up. So I'm just letting you know now. Sure. Well, I had Sir Roger Douglas on this program not too long ago, and he, he kind of mapped out, he gave us a bit of history. It was a great history lesson, but he also mapped out how he thought the country would run economically if we stayed in the configuration we are staying in or that we're in at the moment. And he wasn't very optimistic about how things could turn out. He was talking about huge debt-to-GDP ratios, burgeoning welfare. I know we've heard it all before. A um, contracting tax base and uh, also institutions that need renewal, health service, all, all that sort of stuff costs a lot of money. 
How do you see, if you were, you know, in there influencing, how, how do you see the economy being structured? Changes that need to be made. Um, you know, we're just talking about the growth fund, investing in infrastructure, et cetera, going forward, if you're going to make any difference and leave the, the place in a, in a better state. Can you sort of map that out? Hmm. I think the first thing, we need to strip the bureaucracy of inertia. And to do that, we're going to have to have a bureaucratic restructuring. And it's got to start at the top with uh, the chap who runs the State Services Commission. Uh, I pushed an idea that the top CEOs in the civil service, when the government changes, they should change as well. Uh, I was unsuccessful in convincing Labour, and uh, we had to move on from other issues. But this is an idea that I have pushed, and I will continue to push it at our annual general conference, because... We've ended up with a top-heavy, over-regulated bureaucratic approach to our economy. And that seems uh, Roger Douglas, who in my my view is a very sage-like character, is right. But we no longer believe in economic growth in this country. We find a thousand million reasons why various initiatives or projects cannot happen. Now, had that been the attitude of our forefathers then we would be like some sparsely populated but largely broke Pacific Island. We have got to get back and invest in ourselves and inculcate to ourselves a deep commitment to economic growth. We should be mining in this country. Why are we bringing Indonesian coal, yet we've got perfectly good coal in New Zealand? We should be re-engaging in gas exploration and developing gas fields But no, we've got this ideology that somehow we can prove to the rest of the world by being climate purists, we have somehow allowed our political culture and bureaucratic culture to buy into a type of puritanism. And I'll tell you what, mate, it's going to make us poorer. In respect of whether or not we can grow certain industries in New Zealand, we need to change laws and regulations that reward investment and reward people for having a go. And the Crown should only focus, for example, housing. What a joke. I told Phil Twyford, you'll never get 100,000 houses, mate. Sadly, they believed it. I said, you'll never get light rail. If they're saying it's 30 billion now, it'll be 60 billion when it happens, which is why it'll never ever happen. It's just a pipe dream. But these vanity projects, these indulgences, that Labour pushed through policy seances, uh, working groups, diverted their attention from the practical things that happen. You want to solve housing in New Zealand? Then create buildable land and leave it to the market to deliver housing. Kind order, the first thing that should happen with kind order, its name should be changed. Secondly, they should be barred from doing any uh, property development. They should be uh, instructed on how to be good asset managers, tenancy managers, and any gangs that go into Kainga Order should be booted out immediately. And if you don't know where they're going to stay, we'll get a caravan, put it up the back of Mangamuka. Or another ship. They can stay up there. Yeah, another ship. I, I was just uh, recommending. Yeah, well, Find another ship. There might, there might be one or three available from Kiwi Rail. Yeah. So, but, uh, Paul, Paul, just before I finish there. Yeah. I, I really want to re-emphasize the point. If we don't tackle with great robustness, mate, the feral underclass culture that is driving the ram rates, driving the hundreds of motorbike um, characters running around Auckland, 
driving the wanton violence in regional and provincial New Zealand, then we are going to unravel our ability to be economically resilient. And I'm diabolically opposed to any soft namby-pamby approach any longer to this class or this culture of rampant criminality. So come down hard. Got to come down hard, right? Yeah, totally. Really hard? Totally. Hey, there's really. a reason why the Old Testament is before the New Testament in the Bible, okay? No one redeems themselves until such time they actually realize that you will lose an eye for an eye. And if they continually carry on the way they are, uh, and mo most of the perpetrators, whether it's the 501s or the other people that are coming through from this feral subculture, they really don't care about you and I. They've become so nihilistic and they've imbibed the spirit of a Mad Max violence movie. Ah, uh, well, Judge Dredd's on the way. His name's Shane Jones. <laughs> okay. But it's tolerated. Why is it tolerated? You've got victims, horrible things happen, and it's tolerated. It's got um, considerably worse over the last decade or so. I just think there's a big disconnect. <clears throat> and uh, there is a sense that if we can prove that people are the way they are because of historical um, colonialism, treaty marginalization, somehow this is going to be part of a recipe for them to turn themselves around. No, 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 that's, that, that is grossly wrong. And we need to, quite frankly, we need to invert that ideological folly and go back to teaching people to read and write, be responsible for their actions, and know when you continually break the law, threaten, kill, or spread menace, then you don't belong in our community anymore. And we'd rather that you were totally removed from our community. Do you think people are up for the law and order message this election? Well, they certainly are in the North. I can't comment for what's the situation in Wellington, but I would say once again to the people engaged in your program, go on my Facebook and read from the 50-odd thousand people, including TikTok, what they are saying. The vast majority of them may not have a recipe, may not have an instant answer, but they're frightened. They're confused. They're vexed. And... Um, I think it's a rich vein to tap into so we can create a movement that brings to heal this lawlessness. Well, if a government's prepared to lock down the population, why not lock down the criminals? <laughs> Mate, I've, I've been saying that in the North. If Jacinda was prepared to lock down the North, half the time in the North, we didn't know we were open. We didn't know we were closed. Uh, if uh, that level of exclusive authority vested unwisely and too much in her, was used to lock down the North, then let's lock up all of the criminal class so that over time people realise there are genuine costs in society that New Zealand represents today. We cannot, we cannot allow this virus to metastasize. I've got to ask you how you feel about Jacinda Ardern receiving two fellowships at Harvard, because you mentioned Harvard before. And they're writing glowing things about her. She's a darling to them. What do you make of those appointments? How, how long ago would that have been set up? Well, the first thing is she's um, 
she's following the footsteps of Shane Jones in 1990 and 91. And, uh, ah, man, how do I really feel? The, I, I told you about the, the curating of Jacinda's image, her profile, and I think the courses that she's going to do in Kennedy School, they may have appealed to that Bosniwash area, that very affluent liberal uh, mixture of people that occupy that part of the states. But once you get into the Midwest and other parts of the state, they'll be totally disinterested in what she's doing. I do feel, however, that the less that we see or hear about what Jacinda's doing, it's better for those of us who are left behind to clean up the mess. And I, I wish her well, uh, looking after her family and what career um, she may seize upon in the future, but it'll have zero relevance to what we've got to do to tidy things up. What you've got to do is is get back in. And like I mentioned before, the polls are still sort of down there. They're registering, but they're down there. I think uh, 1.4 was the last I saw. You, you may have seen more recent polling than that. What have you got to do to get over the line? You're not going to give away your all your strategy, but you know, how are you going to engage with as many people as possible in the media environment? I want to talk about that too before we finish, to cut through with a message that actually works for you. Well, without a doubt, Winston has begun to pump out the message as our leader. And if I can use a term that I often deploy up north, the notion of indivisible nationhood, indivisible citizenship. We're not going to tolerate any more of these flights of fancy to do with co-governance, but it's even deeper than that. We're facing huge challenges in New Zealand when you look out, okay? We've got um, a surging China. We've got America with its own internal challenges, but also wanting to try and maintain its role in the world. We've got Australia now nuclearizing, spending billions, if not trillions, over the next 25 years, arming up. Where's New Zealand in all of this? And what are we doing? We're floundering in the South Pacific. We've, we've become insular. We've become so inward-looking, arguing with each other about the Treaty of Waitangi and colonialism, absolutely irrelevant to New Zealand's modern-day challenges. And that has worsened under Jacinda's government. So that's the first thing that I think Kiwis are very keen to see someone uh, not so much rail against, but change. The Waitangi Tribunal, for example, has been around for 50 years Come, come 2025, which is just within spitting distance, it would have been around for 50 years, created in 1975. So 50 years back from 1975 was 1925. Did anyone really think that we'd have to have this organisation for 50 years and it continues to report on things that are totally irrelevant? I read the other day they're writing a report about the tax system. They're writing another report about the Constitution. So in my view, the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal should be wound up in 2025, get half a dozen of them, put them in a little office at the at the back of... Uh, actually, no, they can, go, they can go up to Wanganui or somewhere like that. And then we need to move on from this whole post-colonial, post-treaty debate. I do think not only uh, law and order, but there are very, very powerful things that need to be done in the space of economic development in areas of essential importance. The energy sector, 
and uh, we'll have much more to say about those things. And also continuing to hold people responsible if you receive welfare and you're not doing anything to improve your lot or the lot of your children, then maybe someone should manage your welfare for you. These types of issues we'll be discussing in our own party, and when the time is right, we'll reveal them. Winston looks in pretty good shape, but he's getting on. Is he, you know, up for it? Oh, absolutely. He's an evergreen. He's robust. He's resilient. And um, sharp as a tack. In terms of Winston's knowledge of politics and the arc of his career, he's seen it all. And there's no experience, as Christopher Luxon is finding, for experience. There's no alternative, shall I say, for experience. And Christopher Luxon is struggling to to be something beyond formulaic. He's would like you, would you, would you switch him? Would you switch him? If, if it was your call, would you switch him out now? I don't think they've got that option now. Uh, obviously, they thrust it upon him before he was ready. Recently, Richard Preble wrote an article that it takes three or four years, and people need to bear in mind that John Key was four and a half years, I think, before he took over. And Richard Preble said that business people can't just immediately transition into that top role. Um, Stephen Joyce, he had, although he had had a private sector background, he was the National Party even before he came into uh, to Parliament. So uh, Margaret Wilson was an example. She came in and went straight into Cabinet in the days of Helen Clark. And sadly, uh, that inexperience showed. And in many of the roles she held as a minister, there's nothing particularly memorable about what she did. All right, so you got to get the message out, and we know, all of us know, that uh, Winston and, well, and the party, but mainly Winston's had this certain relationship with media. Now, I've been around for a while, and it's never really changed. It's always been kind of the same relationship between journalists, media, and Winston. I don't know if it's forced him in a way of, of being, uh, well, the way he comes through in media, because he has to sort of deal with that. It would seem to me that the media probably is more hostile in that sense, than they have ever been. So how do you get around that? Well, obviously, the media landscape has fractured, uh, which is why I was diabolically opposed to the fusion of TV1 and Radio New Zealand. It was a daft idea. It was driven by people who largely expected to be the financial beneficiaries of such a fusion. And the fact that it has failed is a matter of great um, pride in my own thinking. That, can I jump uh, in? That, you'll know the answer to this. How can you spend, I think they spent 20 or 40 million on that so far. Nothing's happened. They're all still in the same offices. Nothing has actually happened. How do you bury that sort of money? Yeah, well, just look, just look at where the money went to. It went to consultants and they themselves have developed an art form as to how you charge for your time. And in that sense, I can understand why uh, the leader of the National Party is doing the haka about consultants. But anyway, coming back to the landscape, the landscape is fractured. People are getting their information, whether you like it or not, mate. People are following uh, their proclivities as to where are they finding streams of information that not only answer their questions, but interest them or titillate their imagination. Uh, I'm, I'm still very much uh, a person 
who who watches the news, but I watch a lot of international news. And Winston definitely has a distinctive relationship uh, with the mainstream media. But I think when we get closer to the election, um, they themselves will stop trying to either parody or uh, belittle him, and they'll take on board the fact that he's going to be right in the thick of uh, the nature and the character of the next parliament, if not the next government. I noticed the donate button on the website. Of course, you'd have that. Uh, how are you being supported by the electorate out there? Have you noticed an uptick? Is there is it surging support? Where are you at on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly close to uh, uh, that level of the board's activities. But um, let's face it, the, the big end of town have uh, nailed their colours to the mast of the ACT Party who themselves have proven to be very able magpies and stolen quite a lot of the ideas from New Zealand First. And um, this time round, many of those who voted for Jacinda have gone back to national. But no, we have our we, we, we have people that we rely upon to provide us with support. Uh, I myself, in the historical, going backwards in the history of my own electoral forays, I've been supported by the fishing industry and various other industries, and uh, I, I've got no doubt in my mind for the campaign in the North, uh, people uh, will continue to step up to the plate, and I'll run a vigorous campaign with a good budget. But, I mean, the, the, the notion of stigmatising or trying to play gotcha politics with the people that provide money ends up disincentivizing a lot of people to give money towards politics. And often... There is an element of people wanting the state to pay for elections. Uh, both Winston and I have never, ever agreed with that because all that will happen is the bureaucracy will end up uh, being in charge of democracy. And we all saw that in the worst aspects of COVID. So who on earth wants to have that permanently cemented into the administration of elections, the funding of elections? in our democratic system. Okay, that's a very important point for our audience that you've just brought up there or mentioned. There's um, a royal commission that's planned. There's huge criticism of the restricted terms of reference. Um, terms of reference sort of left out to, if you want to sort of add it all up, um, limit the scope of any damage that comes from it, let me put it that way. Winston went to the protested parliament. He walked through. He's, it's all on video. I know people that he chatted with when he was there. He was the only one who fronted up. He didn't engage more than that, but he was there. First up, can you explain, we ask everybody this, why all those politicians stayed in the bunker and didn't have the balls to come out on the front steps of parliament? Would you have signed up to that? No, 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 definitely not. I was astounded that even David Seymour, the so-called gladiator of freedom of speech and rights, treated Kiwis in such a shabby fashion. Uh, I think the sense that had uh, the MPs gone down there, they would have been uh, in danger of life or limb is an absolute lie. And I also think that people like Willie Jackson, uh, who's a working class warrior, whatever else you might think about him, he is a blue-collar warrior. I think that they actually wanted to go down there, engage, talk, listen, mix and mingle, because people like Willie knew lots of the people in the audience. 
and um, they were prevented from doing so by the labor intelligentsia, starting with Jacinda and Grant Robertson. And I think Grant made a grave error of judgment in not moving very quickly. And sadly, uh, Chris Hipkins uh, went along for the ride. Uh, I suspect he sort of, during the period of time where Chris was in charge of health and COVID, he went a bit power crazy. Uh, he's hoping that we've all forgotten that uh, period of faulty judgment now that he's the prime minister, but they can't walk away from it. They went power crazy. And the thing that they never did is they never controlled the bureaucracy because in many cases, Labour politicians are an extension of the bureaucracy. Very few of them have come from an independent uh, entrepreneurial, commercial, business, farming background. They've gone to university, they've gone overseas perhaps and had a bit of an OE, then they've come back and worked in the political machine. So they're an extension of the bureaucracy. It's like Norman Kirk said, your job is to protect the public from the bureaucracy, not protect the bureaucracy from the public. Okay, so some, some light needs to go on all of this, obviously, right? We, we need to see what happened here to avoid mistakes and there's a certain amount of accountability that people feel is due how committed to following through if at all on a process that would deal with that well a lot of these a lot of these reports that are written royal commissions etc if the recommendations aren't granular if the recommendations aren't practical, if they're not driven towards a well-defined problem, then they just gather dust, mate, sitting on a shelf. And perhaps the most spectacular example of that is in the days of Geoffrey Palmer in the late 80s, when he commissioned a group of people, including uh, Dr. Mason Jury, to write a report about social policy. Never, never changed anything, never went anywhere. And I think those of our Kiwi compatriots that are concerned that a similar outcome will lie behind this Royal Commission need to drive that point very forcefully during the election. Because the bureaucracy, we don't even know who they are. The people, for example, who made many of these large allocation decisions, I remember there was a group that were ready to go with, I think, saliva testing or nasal testing, and they missed out on the contract, and $60 million got given to another group. The, audited, the auditing department investigated it. They said that group was really, uh, were they really up to it? They weren't sure, but the process was so flawed that the people who made the decision within the health department uh, had a whole bunch of conflict of interest. The average Kiwi doesn't even know that happened. The average Kiwi, the average politician will never know who these people are. So it's less a focus on uh, who, who, who all the politicians were of the day. It's a focus on how the machinery of the bureaucracy took over. And when we looked for our politicians to hold them to be accountable, they had run for the hills, they had been dismembered intellectually, and they had been so weakened because Jacinda was running everything and they were unable to look after our interests, mate. 
So it was her. She's the intersection point for all of this. Do you well, you are the Prime Minister. You can't walk away from this. You are the Prime Minister, and now, that, in my view, that whole experience is the reason she's no longer the Prime Minister. But it's no longer about her. She's got other things with her family to Yeah, but with. she made those decisions that really affected lives. You can't just shimmy on by like it didn't happen. Yeah, but she has. She's, got, she's off to Harvard. She's not going to face the wrath of the electorate in, uh, in October. She's um, hit the road, Jack, and gone. The, and, 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 a, and a challenge for all political parties is whether or not they can get the New Zealand public when they vote to focus on how robust and what quality of stewardship really was practised and delivered upon during the COVID experience. And look, for a lot of people in the North, I have to tell you, I know Matt King's got his party and he's campaigning um, on many things associated with the uh, the excesses and the failures around the COVID experience. But I find, Paul, many Kiwis, it's, it's, it's blighted them to such an extent, they just want to get on with life. They, they can't bear going back and living through that. It's not going to funerals not being able to hold unveilings, not being able to get people back into the country, you know, having... Being injured. Pardon? Being injured. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to personalise it, but we lived through that in my own family, and, and sadly um, the person who wasn't is going to carry some lifelong effects. This is that. the accountability I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But all I'm saying is that we've also got to be a bit balanced here. A lot of Kiwis their fears and their anxieties over the COVID experience have now been replaced by, oh, my Lord, what the hell's happened with the cost of living and what can actually be done to turn around the capacity of my children to enjoy the quality of life that I've had or will they all bugger off to Australia? Well, and that's something else. Just last week, wasn't it? The Prime Minister Albanese and Chippy were over there and they signed a deal, it looks like to me, enable citizenship after a period of time for Kiwis in Australia. There's some, you know, conditions around that, but that's really what it means. That sounds like a really dumb idea for us. The only reason the Aussies have done this, mate, is to raid the intellectual larder of New Zealand. Why would you let it happen, though? The we need side. to bear in mind it was Phil Goff and Helen Clark that allowed it to happen in the first place. John Howard steered them down. That was the greatest foreign policy fiasco that I have seen in my lifetime. Helen, and in particular Phil Goff, they acquiesced and backed down when John Howard laid the, uh, laid the political acid on them. And it ended up marginalising and devaluing the rights of Kiwis in Australia. Now, mm -hmm. I think with Chippy, they mistakenly have assumed that this is going to be a mark of um, political distinction for them going forward into the election. I think it's going to be largely irrelevant other than it'll simplify the process for Kiwis to pack up. Mate, Kiwis in Northland, if we don't get a handle on this lawlessness, lawlessness and this sort of sewer rat feral culture, they're going to pack up and go. Working class people, tradies. Okay, it may not be a problem for um, uh, all the um, grandees living in Wellington, but out in the provinces, you're going to see a major 
drain of talent to Australia. And one of the reasons is they don't want their kids growing up being exposed to this parasitic feral culture. I suppose, you know, the New Zealand government can't stop what the Australian government wants to do. They want good people and we've got good people. Um, it's slowly running down, it seems. But at this side, to ever let that happen, where you could encourage some sort of exodus potentially, seems like irresponsible politics to me or, or just irresponsible governance of a country. Well, the challenge for those of us left here and still wanting to come back into politics is to turn our fortunes around, boost our yeah, boost our livelihoods, boost, boost the uh, resilience in our economy and get cracking again by exporting goods and services, simplifying the way of doing business so you can live also uh, with a greater degree of freedom and a greater degree of security. That's the challenge for us. We can't individually stop Kiwi whānau from wanting to go over there. And we're going to see a lot of my Māori people from the north go over there to live because they're sick and tired of the uh, culture that passes for New Zealand political culture. They don't believe in co-governance. Co-governance was imposed upon us by the United Nations. Come on, you know that. John Key, Rodney Hyde, and Dr Peter Sharples formed that government, and that government agreed to sign up to the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights. And apart from that, uh, and when they brought that back here, the Labour, unbeknown to Winston and I, decided that co-governance was going to be a way to give effect to the United Nations dictates in that declaration. That is not an idea. It was never, ever derived, conceived from the home of the treaty, which is in Northland. Okay, let's uh, finish up on a bit of policy here. I'm looking at the commitments page of your website and uh, nothing new has been added in the time I looked last, and that's when Winston uh, was here. Uh, so there'll be more policies on there, right? Because people will want to know. That'll start to fill up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, obviously it will. It's uh, I, I would encourage everyone engaged on our show that politicians do crystallize policies. But first, they go through a party process so that all the members not only have a say, they're able to go out there and extol the virtues of the policy because it's been mandated by the broader community of members in the party. And it's just a matter of timing. We don't want all of our policies too early, where, as they have been in the past, nicked by the ACT Party. <laughs> okay. So just the ones that are here. So no change to eligibility for superannuation. That's the bottom line, right, for you? The party is not buying into um, what Sir Roger has said. He wants to see a boosting of the uh, age of eligibility. Okay. Vaccine mandates will end. No well, you heard no, Winston on yeah, um, Friday the 14th, I think, in Kitty Kitty, when my candidature was announced, he repeated that. Okay. And you're going to change the woke description on here is woke virtue signaling names of every government department back to English. That's something that could be done pretty quick, with no disrespect, by the way, you know. Well, the tragedy is the flash Māori names are inversely related to the quality of the service being delivered by these organisations. And those Māori names are just filigree. It's just tokenism. The people at the top of the tree in those bureaucratic um, hierarchies, they don't even believe in those names. It's been imposed upon them by Labour. And the only reason that Labour is... Um, 
insistent on changing those names is because it's part of the identity political ideology. It's got nothing to do with delivering more robust outcomes for Kiwis. All right, Farmac, more funds. Everyone says health's a black hole. You can never stop with it. When you say more funds, what's the scale of that, do you think? Because there are well, a lot of people who can't get medicines now that are funded overseas that do amazing things and they just really can't afford them here. Yeah, well, obviously, the amount of money will be released as we go a bit further, but it's all about prioritising. Okay, how much money has been spent on consultation restructuring costs in the last 18 months, hundreds of millions for the health department, and now it's worse. What they should have focused on, mate, is actually enabling more and more of our school leavers or homemakers, men and women, to become nurses. And the fact that nursing has been put out of the reach of working class people, it's almost as if you need a physics degree to be a nurse now. That's absolute rubbish. They should have gone back to the system of when my daughter, my sister rather, was a nurse because nursing is a profession that there are hundreds and thousands of young Kiwis who would love to take up, but the government has not actually focused on practical results. Similarly, it is but it is also time for us to boost the number of our young people going into the army. We need, a, we need a standing corps of engineers in our army so that we can deal with the outbreak of weather events and weather-related damage. Don't just all expect the foreign, foreign firms that uh, dominate the infrastructure sector to do that type of work. And that speaks to governments consistently not doing things that are of practical relevance and practical importance. We've got lots of people who should not be on the dole, who should not be welfare recipients, and they should accept that if you're capable of working, if you're capable of learning, and you're sitting on your mono, on your backside, those days are over. Now, I did try that in terms of getting the nefs off the couch, but I was shot down by Jacinda. And sadly, over the last five years, we've drifted towards welfare being an entitlement without anyone having to take on board the obligations or duties associated with getting money for doing nothing. That's a really tough one to deal with, though, isn't it? To, to unwind to that? Pardon? To unwind it? Uh, that, that's a hard job. That, that well, would be makes, one of the hardest, I mean, wouldn't it? Virtually everything that we've spoken about, the inertia of the bureaucracy, the embedding of co-governance, the entrenchment of the victimhood ideology. You're almost left feeling you're about to scale Mount Everest in a pair of jandals. No one should underestimate how intractable these issues are. But I'll say was Preble, Roger Douglas, they broke open an earlier period of policy calcification in New Zealand through Rogernomics. So we need a dose of circuit breaking, as funnily enough, as Roger Douglas has said, in the field of economic development and welfare. But sadly, we can only do it by political parties sharing a common interest in wanting to take a robust approach to it. I mean, one thing that I really had the support uh, from Winston to do was P remediation industry training in areas where we were struggling to attract people. We made tremendous 
strides in 2018, 2019, even taking young men out of prison before they were to be released and getting them to work in the forestry sector. So we've got to go back to those practical ideas. It's a, it's a practical alternative to just turning up and getting on work ready and living there for a long period of time and you get caught in a bog of dysfunctionalism and it's it's a crying shame to see that in provincial New Zealand where so many of our young men and women are caught in that trap. Uh, another thing uh, Douglas said uh, in the chat that I had with him was the reason they were able to do that in 84 was because they all agreed that they could expend a lot of political capital and they were prepared to spend it. And he said the difference now is that no one's prepared to spend it. He gave John Key as an example. He said he had political capital in spades, but he didn't spend it. He kind of made a good point. They've got to spend their political capital at some point, don't they, to make anything happen? Well, when you cleave perpetually to the centre and you live by the articles and the headlines of the mainstream media or you focus group your future, then it gets very, very hard to make um, tough, uh, robust decisions. But um, I think that our track record uh, under Winston in the last 2017-20 period reveals the things that we were in charge of, um, such as the military, such as the Provincial Growth Fund, uh, boosting forestry. And I know that that's a controversial issue in parts of rural New Zealand because the farmers don't like trees. But uh, we, and, and all fair-minded people, have to agree we delivered on the areas where we were responsible. All right, and we've talked about crime, but crime is the last on the list there that I wanted to mention. It's a growing problem. It's obvious, the ram raids and all of that. Um, maybe the price of tobacco is too high. <laughs> Bring that down, there wouldn't be such a black market. I've heard Winston talking about that before. But how hard, if you get the opportunity, how hard, how fast do you go on crime? Because people want to see a change. They don't want it to take too long, I don't think. You know, I heard, Greg, I heard the criminologist um, from South Island, can't think, I think it's... Greg Newbold. Yeah, Mr. Newbold. I agree with what he said. You know what he said? He said for a lot of young people that go to jail, it's probably a good outcome for them because it'll be the first time they've ever had any discipline, any structure, and an opportunity to learn to read and write words to that effect. And uh, number one, I was quite impressed by the fact that he said it because I usually found him to be an apologist um, for those that uh, are committing crimes and in gangs and all that sort of jazz. But I uh, overheard the interview uh, several weeks ago. Uh, I think people want to see that in New Zealand, we're going to go back to a regime where the consequences of your wrongdoing carry weight. And then we're going to have a police force that goes back to recruiting men and women capable of enforcing the law and intervening and stopping these outbreaks of lawlessness. And then we're going to import, if I had my way, that model of policing that's in Queensland, where you have people continually thumbing their noses, the gangs creating mayhem, menace, and obviously murder. And look, I'd have a police force that was breaking their door down at 2.45 in the morning, mate. 
why the hell should the rest of us, if we're driving anywhere at 2.45 in the morning, be scared that we might actually be overcome and stopped and have our car nicked or something? So I'm, I'm all for um, shock and awe. Okay, let's leave it there. Shane Jones, I want to thank you for giving us the time for, you know, quite a wide-ranging within the parameters chat. Really appreciated it. I'm sure our listeners um, uh, are better informed for it. And you're standing, it's in the Northland electorate, right? You're a candidate there. Is that is that the electorate? Are you standing yeah, in? we have uh, the Whangarei electorate. Oh, we have okay. the Northland electorate. Oh, I got you. And um, there is the Māori seat that runs kind of from Henderson right up north, the Taitokero seat. We do not have a candidate in the Taitokero Māori electorate, but we have a candidate in my good self, in Northland, and we will be announcing a candidate in due course in Whangarei. Shane Jones, thanks for your time on Reality Check Radio, and we're going to be watching with interest. Thank you very much. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.